0: hi it's nice to meet you it's lovely to meet you i am a great big fan i tell you that your book came along at just the right time for me when i was oh, full of despair so aye, aye, aye. okay <laughs> well get started now you have many questions
1: and let me double check so this is just audio it's not video just audio i get quite animated sometimes but i shall try not to hit the table <laughs> i've made many a person hit
0: the desk over the years <laughs> Hi all, I'm Abigail Disney, and welcome to All Ears. In recent months, I've been on the road with my new documentary, The American Dream, and other fairy tales. In the film, I tell the stories of some Disney workers to show how the American Dream has become a nightmare for so many. Of course, the problem is not just with Disney. Today, nearly half of all American workers are struggling to make ends meet. That's why, in this season of all years, I'm taking a deep dive into some of the big questions raised in the film with folks who are doing the most Disney thing possible, using their imaginations. In this case, to rethink modern American capitalism. Because if we don't reimagine how it all works, and fix it, we're going to be in big trouble. I'm going to read a little intro, and then we'll jump into it. It's okay with you? Yes. Okay, here we go. We all know that visual metaphors are great for getting your point across, but when they are overly simplistic, they can act like junk food for your brain, empty calories, easy, addictive, but probably not so good for your thought process. Take the classic notion of climbing the ladder of success, or the very confusing pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. In The American Dream and other fairy tales, I talked about how these sorts of metaphors can keep us from thinking outside of the box. Another metaphor that's kind of stupid who thinks in a box. So you can only imagine how thrilled I was a couple of years ago when I picked up a book full of smart new metaphors called Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And today, I get a chance to talk to its author, the brilliant economist Kate Rayworth. Kate has been reimagining capitalism using a visual of the ultimate junk food, a donut, but in ways that may, in fact, be healthy for our brains. Her model imagines a sustainable economy, one that balances human needs as well as planetary needs with the needs of a healthy market. Yes, folks, I'm saying that thinking about our economy as a metaphorical donut might be just what we need. Kate Rayworth is a senior associate at Oxford's Environmental Change Institute and a professor of practice at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. She also runs the Donut Economics Action Lab. Kate, thanks for joining me.
1: A big pleasure. A big pleasure. I love love your focus on metaphors. Uh, That's exactly where I begin, and, and I think it's so important to notice them and reframe them. Yeah, you have a little bit of a section about the way the brain is wired for metaphors. Well, it's fascinating because when we humans try to understand the world... We, we can't understand the whole thing because it's so complex and extraordinary. So we turn it into things that we understand and we use metaphors in our language all the time. And when you realize that, you just spot them all the time. And so some of the, like one of the deepest metaphors, let's go straight to the point, is is growth, right? We think the idea of growth is, um, you know, because we love our children to grow. We love our flowers in the garden to grow. And the depiction of growth is always moving forwards and up. As if that therefore becomes not only the metaphor, but in fact, the definition of progress. And so when our metaphors, they're really useful for understanding some things, but when we take them beyond what they should be used for, they start to drive us and really mislead us. And we have to spot them and let go of them and find new ones like, yes, like a donut. Yes.
0: So tell me about the donut. What on earth do you mean by a donut? I mean physicists love it. They call it a solid torus. Describe for me how you arrived at a donut.
1: Yeah, so I decided not to call it toric economics because I thought that yes. really that really won't catch on. So but if I say to anybody, you know, think of a donut the kind with a hole in the middle. Well, we we all know exactly what I'm talking about. That shape is there. So the donut in this donut economics, is like a compass for 21st century prosperity. And the goal is, leave no one in the hole. Leave no one falling short on the essentials of life. So leave nobody without health, education, housing, income, political voice, transport, connectivity, community. These we know every person needs for a life of dignity and community and opportunity. So leave no one in the hole of the donut. And you could say a lot of the story of the 20th century was building economies and growing economies so that no one was left in the hole. But we're not in the 20th century anymore. We now know that as we use Earth's resources to meet these essential needs, we cut forests, we take the fish from the sea, we emit carbon emissions in the atmosphere, we pollute the land and the air. We start to put so much pressure on the life-supporting systems of our planetary home that we risk kicking her out of balance. And so if the inside of the donut is the minimum needs of every human being, and let's call them human rights, then the outside of the donut, that outer crust, is where we overshoot our pressure on our planetary home and start to kick her out of balance. We, we cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans. We create a hole in the ozone layer. We unravel the fabric of the web of life. And these are known as planetary boundaries the protection limits on our planetary home. So in the simplest of terms, leave no one in the hole. Don't overshoot Earth's limits. We need to learn to thrive in the space between the two. And that is what it means to live in the donut. Mm, I love that. And I could live in a donut anyway. (laughs) This is the only one that's any good for us, of course, because it's conceptual. Because you don't actually have to eat them. The best ones are conceptual.
0: Yes. Well, no, I think the best ones are (laughs) Krispy Kreme, but
1: that's just me. (laughs) So
0: in terms of a classic economics education, this is quite different from what
1: you were weaned on, yeah? For sure. Uh, Tell me about how different. So I was trained at the University of Oxford 30 years ago. I, like many, many students, I came along to learn the mother tongue of public policy. And I cared about social issues. I cared about environmental issues. As a teenager of the 1980s, I saw a famine in Ethiopia, a hole in the ozone layer, Exxon Valdez spilling oil into Alaska's sound. I wanted to study economics so I would have the tools to tackle things like these. And once I learned, you know, scrabbled around learning the basics, I gradually realized that the issues I cared most about were peripheral. They were on the margins. They were really poorly treated. They were add-ons, nice-to-haves, options on the side if Mm -hmm. you want. Mm -hmm. And so I became really frustrated with economics Let me just give one example. Let's go back to the 1980s. If we were to talk about acid rain, an economist would say, yes, yes, acid rain, that's an environmental externality. And an externality in economics is something that falls outside of a market contract. So there's a buyer and a seller, and they're each deciding how much it's worth to pay or produce. And other people may be impacted. So the buyer and the seller producing a factory to turn out cars. Well, the pollution from the factory might create acid rain that falls on forests and kills them. And that's an external to their deal, to their trade and to the price. So it gets called by economists an environmental externality. Just take that. I mean, it's not just acid rain, it's climate breakdown, it's ecological breakdown, it's the sixth math extinction, it's air and soil pollution. And economists say, yes, yes, these are environmental externalities. Why does labeling
0: something an externality give you sort of license to pretend it doesn't (laughs)
1: exist? So, economists use the word externality and and say, but we care about these things. We know that they're environmental externalities. And if I step back and say, okay, just think about the framing of that. Oh, it's an externality. So, already just the word is telling me it's peripheral, it's not at the center of my vision, it's something on the outside. And just the model that that places is that the the really crucial thing is at the center of our vision. And then there's some bad things happening around the edge. I mean, the externality of climate change, this is the major story of the century. And if we call it as an externality, we are pushing it to the margins verbally with the use of that word. And that's why the donut says, no, 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 not going to use that word. We're going to start. Bang. These are our values. Most economic models do not show that the economy is embedded in and dependent upon the living world. They just start with the flow of money going round and round and the goods and labour going round and round. So we need to start with ecological economics that says the economy is a human construct, it's part of society, and we are part of the living world. And so everything that we do has to be compatible with producing conditions conducive to the continuation of life. There's nothing external (laughs) about that. It's the heart and it's foundational
0: Right, right. It's remarkable and ironic to recognize that the fundamentalist version of the markets that we were taught in the 70s and 80s was that, well, the problem will just create a market, and then there will be somebody who, for profit reasons, will want to solve the problem. So if it's acid rain, somebody's going to come up with a profit-based way to address acid rain, and the same thing will happen with smog. And the same, and Again and again, we've missed our opportunity to change things in a way that was deeply irrational because of our emphasis on hyper-rational understandings
1: of the way the world works. Right. And markets are incredibly powerful. Adam Smith was right, right? That Adam Smith saw the market mechanism, a very powerful mechanism for bringing together the interests of millions of buyers and millions of sellers who never need connect or talk or meet. They can just transmit information through the price mechanism. He was right. There was something powerful there. It's very, it's magic. It's a lot like magic. It seems a lot like magic, but there's a couple of caveats. Markets only serve those who can pay, the rest they ignore. And they only value what's priced, the rest they exploit. And so those are pretty big caveats. And so we need other forms of organising. And again, in Donut Economics, I show the economy is made up not just of the market and the state, which end up in a particularly, I think, in the US, a very ideological boxing match. Are you a free market laissez-faire capitalist or are you a state-loving socialist? Right? Which one are you? Well, we need them both. Right? They do different things really well. But that's only just half of the story. We have the commons. The common resources on which we all depend, clean air, a stable climate, and there ain't no market that's going to protect those. So we need to organize in other ways. Yeah, the words,
0: the tragedy of the commons, of all the things that are laden with values in the way economics are taught, the idea that the commons is treated as, you know, a tragedy waiting to happen,
1: just right there in economics 101 makes my heart so sad. And you know what? The commons can be a triumph. So this, again, we're back to metaphors and framings. When we frame the economy around markets. And ask any economic student, and I ask them often worldwide, what's the first diagram you learn? You remember learning. It's always supply and demand, right? So we come to economics and on day one, we learn supply and demand of the market. So bang, at the center of your vision is the market. And that means that we're focusing on price. So suddenly money is the metric of concern. Didn't have to be that way, but it becomes that way. And so anything that falls outside the price contract is an externality. And then we end up saying, well, you know, if prices are the metric, what does success look like? Well, selling more things and creating more value that shows up as priced value. And so we end up with an economy whose success depends upon growing the value bought and sold. So that's growing national income or GDP, gross domestic product. And we end up focused on growth before we've even realized we haven't asked ourselves, is this really the goal we want to pursue? And again, I ask students the world over, do you recall in any time in your economics education having a lecture or a lesson or a question or even a slide saying, what if endless economic growth isn't coming? What if it's not possible? What if it's not desirable? What then? And what would we do? And almost every student says, we never talked about that. It's not a question. So the metaphor is so powerful, so all-consuming, we don't even realize it's there, and we don't question it. And of course, this is a disastrous way to begin the 21st century.
0: Right, absolutely. It's a disastrous way to be training people to confront the problems of of the 21st century. When was it for you that you realized that what was being called an externality was actually an ontological challenge, <laughs> and and that there were serious shortcomings in the way the world was being understood. I mean, how did you have the clarity and maybe I think
1: also the courage to to start to question that? So I didn't have it at the time. I hadn't studied economics before I got to university, whereas many of the students around me had. So I had that thing of, ooh, catch up, catch Imposter. up, catch up, just yeah. learn it, learn it, learn it. Yeah. Um, and I was really frustrated that this was how environmental issues were talked about, but I had no idea that there was an alternative. Nobody ever indicated, oh, there's another field called ecological economics, which actually puts the health of the planet first. I had no idea it existed. I studied as a master's degree development economics, which made a lot more sense. And we we began with an essay question of what is human development and how should we measure it? And I, I would say in a way the rest of my career is me trying to answer that first essay question, because my professor put at the centre of my vision, what is the goal? What is success? But it was back in those days, in the early 1990s, development economics made almost no mention at all of the environment and of the living world. And I thought, I don't feel proud to be an economist. I don't feel good sticking my hand out and say, hello, I'm an economist. So I walked away from academic economics. And I immersed myself in the real world economy. I worked three years in Zanzibar with microentrepreneurs in the villages. I worked four years at the United Nations on the Human Development Report. So part of this reframing, not economic development, but human development. I came back to the UK, moved to the city of Oxford to work for Oxfam and worked there for 11 years on labour rights and global supply chains, on climate change. And what we were always doing there was trying to make social and environmental issues visible in the language of economics. And that was frustrating. Begging it to be visible. Can we put a price on it? Can we give a shadow price to it? Can we show it's worth something? Can we show it'll hurt GDP if we don't protect the living world? And I was frustrated by that. I became a mother. I went on maternity leave. I had twins. So I was immersed in the care economy. And then there was a global financial crash. And I remember sitting there nursing my two babies and the whole global financial system's crashing. And the economists come on the radio and the Queen of England said, asked, you know, why did the economists not see this coming? And all the economists of England scrambled for answers for the Queen. And they didn't have a good answer, but they said, oh, we didn't fully bring into our theories the real world of how banks actually work, how money is actually created and the interdependence and the vulnerability between banks. And we must rewrite economics to make it reflect financial realities. And I sat there with my babies and I thought, well, I'll be damned if we're only going to rewrite economics for that. And when I came back to work, I drew the donut. And when people began responding really strongly to it, I realized this is the beginnings of a 21st century economics, where we begin with our planetary home and protecting her life support systems. And we begin with the rights and needs of every person alive. And we put that first, not markets and money. We put human rights and ecological integrity of our living home first and that's the donut and then we ask okay going to kind of flip it on its head now we come and, and that's when i really started coming back towards economics it was only then i mean re- literally i'm i'm a mother i'm decades away from my training and it was then that i went back and and realized the power of pictures because the donut was having such an impact I was amazed how many people were empowered by it and excited by it and writing to me. And not just economists, actually far less economists. It was it was architects and high school teachers and doctors and designers and politicians and city councillors. And that's when you know you've tapped into paradigm change because you're talking to people from so many different fields. And so I thought, okay, this is the time to rewrite the economics with pictures. If pictures are powerful... What are the pictures I was taught when I was a student? And then I went back to my old textbooks and I started looking at the pictures and the metaphors that they hold. And that's when the scales really fell from my eyes. And I, instead of being frustrated and walking away, I was like, damn, I can now see what I was taught and the framing limits of it. I am so excited about saying, let's make that visible so we can see that. And now what if we replace the old with a new proposition, a new diagram, a new metaphor?
0: You know, I'm concerned very much of business and how business operates because economics and business are interconnected and interrelated to each other. And yet I've never seen a business plan that put to the front of the calculations what it would cost to make sure everybody's paid well enough. And that's what bonuses are about, right? It's like after we've done everything and after we've divided everything up and after after we got a little left over here, then we can sprinkle this out as though human dignity isn't necessary or an, an integral part of your process and and I think when you were coming through the economics program, Milton Friedman was running rampant. It's Margaret Thatcher thinks there's no such thing as society. And what they were doing was they were saying, look, greed is natural, it's human. It's what made things happen. And so let's like put greed into action. Let's make it be a force for good. And I do think that there were people who meant that, who thought that greed would be good because it would expand prosperity. But I do, I do wonder, is anyone even trying or talking about taking this kind of normalized, unchecked greed back out of the equation. Not that it was ever perfect before, but how do
1: we correct for this? To the heart of the matter, I like it. So I'm going to start by thinking about what students are taught about humanity when they study economics. Who are we? Is greed our deepest inner self? Is that who we ultimately are? And that is certainly what we're taught when we study economics, because at the heart of economic theory is a character called Rational Economic Man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I I drew a little picture of him, actually, because he doesn't get a drawing of a portrait in the textbooks. They write him in lots of equations. But if you take the equations and say, actually, what would these equations look like? It would look like a man standing all on his own, totally independent, with no dependents, no carers, no society around. He's independent. He's on his own. He's got money in his hand. He's got ego in his heart. He's got a calculator in his head and he's got nature at his feet. He hates work. He loves luxury and he knows the price of everything. Now, these are the traits literally written in the equations to describe rational economic man who is the little atomic creature at the heart of economic models. There's an incredible history of how he got created and I'll just give one moment from it, which I think is the critical one. John Stuart Mill, who was an amazing philosopher, in 1844 at the foundation of creating political economy when it's split away from philosophy, Mill said, political economy does not treat the whole of man's nature, nor the whole of his conduct in society. It sees him as a being who desires to possess wealth. And he goes on, he says, well, I mean, you know, of course, this isn't who we actually are, but this is just a model and people will understand. Well, John, they didn't understand. They took that quite literally. And it was very convenient to reduce humanity. Adam Smith had a far richer notion of humanity. He wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which really understood, he said, our self-interest may be valuable in markets, but it's our, our generosity, our sense of justice, our public spirit that is valuable to society. So Smith had a very nuanced picture. You can't really model and create a set of equations around such a nuanced creature. So Mill... Stripped it down, said, look, somebody who wants to possess wealth. There we are. He implanted, well, obviously it's about the greedy bit of us. That's what economics is about. And then other economists came along and said, hmm, he also needs to have insatiable wants. He needs to have perfect information. He knows the price of tomatoes and everything in the past and the future, present, everywhere, so he can make perfect trades. And they create this caricature so that it can fit really nicely into the models. Now, that's one thing enough already that's absurd to create this really extreme caricature of humanity. The real problem is what being told about him does to us. And an economist called Robert Frank did some fascinating research. He found out that over time, the more that students are taught about rational economic man and these traits, the more that they say they value competition and competitiveness and self-interest over altruism and collaboration. So the model changes us. Who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. So that thing of being greedy, it makes us think, oh, well, I don't always feel like this, but apparently the model says we're ultimately greedy. I really don't want to be the idiot who's sharing stuff when everybody else is snatching and taking. So if we believe other people are going to be selfish and greedy as we step into a room, well, we'll be selfish and greedy too. So the models we make and who we tell ourselves we are massively shapes how we'll behave. I'll give you one more example on this. A wonderful study was done issuing a survey to a lot of people. 50% of people got a survey. On the front, it said, consumer reaction study, please answer these questions. I like this. I don't like this. I prefer that. And on the other one, the only difference is it said, Citizen reaction study. Please answer these questions. Mm. The same questions. Citizen. Yeah, the uh-huh. same questions. And they answered them differently because how they were called. Please come here as a consumer. Oh, you want me to bring my consumer? I will be tough and negotiating and bargaining. And, 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 and. Please come here as a citizen. Oh, I'll bring those things Adam Smith talked about. I'll think about justice and equity. And This goes back into are we consumers? Clients, when we go to healthcare or education or when we meet each other in society, are we consumers or are we actually citizens and family members and neighbors and community members? These words change who we show up as. So that's why I called one of the chapters of my book Nurture Human Nature. As David Hume, the philosopher, said, we have in each of us something of the serpent and something of the dove. We can be both. And I tell you, raising twins, they're now 14 years old. I've seen that competition, <laughs> right? The, the collaboration, yeah. the competition. It's, it's part of all of us and it can be healthy. But we have a huge capacity to collaborate. We are altruistic. We are compassionate. We have solidarity. We need each other. We survive and cope best when we collaborate in groups. So we need to put that at the heart of our economics, not this assumption of greed. And so over and over again, what you keep bringing
0: us back to is the assertion that there's a higher purpose or a higher calling or a higher meaning or something more than simply rational about economic activity. Yes. And to suggest that is deeply radical, right? I mean, it's very radical. What is the
1: pushback like for you? You must be getting pushback. So economics comes from two ancient Greek words, ekos and nomos. Ekos means the household. And nomos means the norms, the culture, the values, uh, the art of management. And the first economist and the first person to write a a, a little booklet called The Economist was a man called Xenophon in ancient Greece. And he wrote it about a single household. And how should you manage your household? Should you let your wife do the accounts? Can you trust her? Can you trust the slaves? How do you manage them? All the wine and the cloth and the corn, you know, and this is what he wrote about. Well, if we take economics as the art of household management and say, okay, Xenophon was writing about a single estate. And at the end of his life, he wrote about the city state. And then along came Adam Smith thousands of years later and wrote about the nation state, the wealth of nations. And here we are 250 years after him we need to go up to the next scale. It's the planetary household. That's the household, right? It's quite clear. We're in the Anthropocene. We understand. We've seen Earth from space. It's one household. So if economics is the art of household management, well, first, let's understand our household. It's this unique, delicately balanced living planet. Let's understand her inhabitants. and, And in whose interests are we managing her? So, you say it's radical, and yes, it's radically different from that. But I like to say, well, it's actually um, utterly... Uh, rational. Rational, ontological. Yeah, it's rational and and true to the meaning of the word economics. It's just the economics of our time. Now, so you said I get pushback. Yeah, the pushback is from economists who I've sat down with. They, If I sit and say, well, here's the donut and this is the goal, they say, ah, ah, you see, you're being political now. You see, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you have strayed mm-hmm. from positive economics, which Friedman loved, which, you know, positive, not meaning good. It means value-free. It's a science. There's no values here. Not normative. No, no, no. This is positive. No values. We're very clear and rational. And when I bring the donut, ah, oh, but this is all very values-based, isn't it? Yes, dear. Tap on the shoulder. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. I say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Do you think that starting economics with no explicit statement of what your aim is, Do you think that starting economics with welcome to economics here is the market? Do you think that's value-free? Yeah, exactly. You think there's no values implicit in starting one-on-one with the market and talking about prices and putting business and companies and company and profit maximization and the assumption that we are greedy? You think there's no values there? You think you're being completely factual? Wake up and realize that there is framing and values in everything that we say. So at least I'm explicit about it. And, and I say, if you don't agree that we should meet the human rights of all people, what which bit of that do you want to disagree with? And if you don't think we should live within the life-supporting systems of the only known living planet in the universe, which bit of that do you want to disagree? Which of these things are you willing to throw away? Mm. That's my re- my response to the pushback. I have to say again, there's the pushback comes from some academics who are very, well, for, for decades have worked within this training and, and have, have mastered it and have become experts at it. But that is not what I hear back from students who today, in the 2020s, are going to university and actually taking on a huge amount of debt to study economics because they want the tools of the mother tongue of public policy to transform the world and shape the future that they know is their their generations. They will be the policymakers and the journalists and the judges and the the MPs and the presidents and, and the CEOs and the designers of 2050 and beyond, So they know they need a mindset that's fit for these times and they embrace it and they desperately want it to be taught as mainstream part of the education. In fact, one thing that does upset me is when I get an email from a young person who says, I read Donut Economics, I love the book, and so I'm going to university to study economics. And I think, ah, but that's not what you're going to be taught. You're going to arrive and realize the first thing you have to do is rewrite the curriculum. And there are
0: students who are talking about rewriting that curriculum, aren't there? And I've read about students walking off of
1: campuses and asking for different uh, syllabi. Do you know anything about that? Oh, absolutely. I'm so inspired by them. In fact, as I began my book talking about one of these students, a young woman called Yuan Yang back in 2014, who, like me, was disillusioned with economics, different to my generation, they had the internet. And so instead of thinking, well, maybe there's just something wrong with me and I don't get it because this doesn't make sense to me, they found each other online and say, hey, there's a whole generation of us who are actually really frustrated because we didn't understand anything about the financial crisis. It wasn't in the curriculum and we just completely don't understand the biggest economic event of decades. And it's not doing justice to planetary breakdown." And social inequality. You just
0: described the the quintessential difference between centralized and distributed systems in this case, in terms of knowledge, right? Yes, exactly. The internet. Don't you wonder who you would have been if you'd had the internet when you were 20 (laughs) something? Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, and so they came together and they created an incredible movement internationally called Rethinking Economics. I mean, there are different movements, but this is one of the main ones. And so there are student chapters in universities around the world. And, and indeed, there are academics who are part of Rethink Economics as well, who, who've who gone into economics but are really frustrated by the curriculum they have to teach. And they know they want to teach more to their students. But, you know, it's, it, there's such inertia around rewriting the curriculum. Uh, so the textbook is just called Economics. It's not called Neoclassical Economics. It's just called Economics. And if no one tells you, you don't know there is another kind. You don't know there's feminist economics or ecological economics. You don't know there's complexity of economics or institutional economics. Or Keynesian economics. Um, so there's a wonderful website called Exploring Economics, and it's uh, made by students. And you click on it, and it just has. It says, "Oh, you want to know about feminist economics? Here's what it is. Here's some key readings. Ecological economics, and it's a wonderful introduction. And that's what the student movement have called for: is just teach us pluralism, show us that there are many schools of thought, trust us to have the critical judgment to decide which one we think is useful for these times." Mm.
0: You know, the the impulse of modern economics has been to take what is chaotic and difficult to manage and rationalize it down to something you can really describe. And what they're doing is exploding that and re-complexifying it, if that can be said
1: to be a word. Exactly. Which is sort of beautiful. Exactly. And of course, it makes a much less neat degree.
0: There's a lot of talk in the sort of um, new social justice sort of business arena about some language that you use for the economy, about redesigning economies so that they're regenerative and
1: distributive. So for me, these are the two really big principles at the heart of donut economics. Let me bring it down to the scale of a city. If a city were to be distributive, well, who owns the land in the city? And who owns the housing? Is it owned privately or is it owned by landlords who are renting it out? And so some people are stuck forever paying rent. Or is it more like the city of Vienna in which over 60% of people live in housing that is owned by the city or city-run cooperatives. Because decades ago, Vienna decided that housing is a human right. So they decided that the housing would be owned collectively and everybody is renting, or not everybody, the vast majority of people are renting, and it's affordable and it's central and it's normal and it's good quality. So that's a very good example of distributive housing. Mm -hmm. We can ask who owns the businesses, Are we living in towns and cities with major multinational corporations and every dollar you spend there, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone into headquarters or a tax haven. It's out. Or are we in towns where the town has built up small local enterprises where the money that you spend goes into the enterprise and the pockets of the workers uh, who are your neighbors and your community who will spend it again in that town? So when we talk about distribution, there's
0: a hysterical element in our politics, especially in this country, that trots out the S-word, socialism. Sharing, Um, you mean, sharing. (laughs) Yes. I think that there is hysteria around the word, and I do think that there's some anxiety about what the transition from this kind of economy to that economy would look like, given that ownership is practically, you know, worshipped in this country as a value, How do we cross in a place like Vienna, for instance?
1: Did someone lose in that equation? It's not happening that way. The places that are actually committed to having far more distributive ownership of housing, I can think of cities, so let me say um, Barcelona. There's old industrial districts that those industries have gone and they've been very run down Many, many cities have this, right? Run down. What are you going to do there? What are you going to do? So they are creating amazing super blocks, blocks with real community, real intention redevelopment. And they are saying, OK, you can build a new company or an industry on half of it. But the other half of this land is going to be social housing. It's going to have a mix of housing. It's going to have a mix of affordability. And we're going to commit to it. And and so it'll be a beautiful, low carbon, energy efficient social housing in this city.
0: Right. I I
1: notice you talking
0: a lot in terms of cities. And I think that's interesting because in the language of economics, the nation state is the way we understand economic units. Tell me about that. Is that a conscious strategy on your part? Is the city more manageable? Is it almost even futile to think in terms of nation states in this kind of substantive restructuring?
1: No, I think, I think both really matter. I think also the community, almost the neighbourhood block, to the town, to the city, to the nation state, and of course the community of nations, it all matters. When my book came out in 2017, I spent two years presenting it wherever I was invited. And I was amazed by the people who came up to me afterwards and said, I love these ideas, I'm doing it. I'm putting it into pr- I am a teacher, I'm teaching in the classroom. I'm a town councillor, I'm a city councillor, I'm a mayor. I'm a I'm a social entrepreneur. I'm a business leader. I'm bringing this into my community. So we founded Donut Economics Action Lab to connect with and work with these change makers who are actually doing it. It's all about putting ideas into practice. We have a principle. We go where the energy is. We just we're a tiny team and we work with whoever says, yep, these ideas look like the kind of ideas that will help us bring about the changes we want to bring about in our place. So cities came first. Amsterdam was the first city in April 2020. They in the midst of Covid, the height of Covid, they said the donut is the compass we want. Six weeks after Amsterdam did that, well, Copenhagen City Council saw that and they said, well, we we're going to they voted massive majority to explore what it would like to create a donut economy in Copenhagen. Barcelona. Glasgow, it's popping up all over the world. There's around 40 cities or towns or districts around the world that are engaged, but also the nation of Bhutan. We're working with the government of Bhutan to bring the principles of donut economics into not only their city planning, but into the way their civil service think about the future of the nation.
0: So you have this great TED talk where you talk about growth and how growth became you know, sort of this almost like religious precept and the market forward way of understanding the world. And you make a distinction between thriving and growing. And I do think that there is a fear of, if not growth, then stasis mm-hmm. and stasis bad, stasis scary, we can't have that. So help me understand the difference between thriving and growing. and What is the alternative to growth? And is the opposite of growth
1: always paralysis? Right, so I have 14 year old twins. And like many, many families, we have every year on their birthday, measured their height on the wall. And for solidly, they grew two inches a year. And it's wonderful. And you know what? And they're they're both taller than me now. And they're actually so tall. It's when people who haven't seen them for about a year, their jaw drops and they can't believe they're looking up and not down. Oh my, haven't you grown? And it's wonderful. But if my kids keep growing two inches a year, within a decade, they literally cannot fit in my house. They cannot sit at my table. They will not belong. And they would be monstrous. So I do not wish any further growth for my kids. They have grown enough. Now I want them to thrive. And and indeed, this is a word that we use, right? When our kids are in high school or in university, oh, how's your daughter? Oh, they're really thriving. That's what people say. When they're little, we say, oh, aren't they growing? And then we say they're really thriving. So we already get this. Secondly, and we're coming back to metaphors and actually checking out the metaphors we use and realising we ha- already have a more nuanced understanding of them. Yes, we love growth and people say, oh, but, but isn't growth so deeply ingrained in us? Well, yes, but if I told you my friend went to the doctor and told her she had a growth, well, we go very quiet because we know that that means something completely different. We know at the level of our own bodies, which like our living planet, our bodies, each one is a complex, adaptive, delicately balanced living system. And we know that when something tries to grow endlessly within our body, and we call that cancer, and we immediately do everything we can to stop that thing growing disproportionately because we know it's a threat to the health of the whole. Well, why would our economy be any different? The idea that Money in the bank and financial, only financial value should increase endlessly when we see the impact that it has on health, on communities, on inequality. It is a threat to the health of the whole if if we put financial value before the whole. So to me, thriving is a beautiful word because it's not status. When something's thriving, it's definitely not static and still. It's dynamic, it's a it's a living word. And to me, this is the existential economic question of our century. And it's a question particularly for high income countries, yours and mine and Europe and Japan and, and Canada and New Zealand. How do we now stop being dependent upon growth? How do we learn to thrive? How do we take the dependency on growth that's been written into our economic institutions? How do we take that out? Now, yes, that's challenging. Actually, it's terrifying. And it's also really exciting every economic student today should be invited to ask those questions and study those issues because theirs is the generation that has to learn this. Mm -hmm.
0: That's a wonderful note to end things on. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been such a delight to talk to you. Really
1: a pleasure. Big pleasure talking with you. Big pleasure. To see the donut
0: and learn about folks putting it to use in their communities, check out the website for the Donut Economics Action Lab. You can also follow Kate Rayworth on Twitter at Kate Rayworth. That's R A W O R T H. If you want to see the American Dream and other fairy tales, it's available on Amazon and iTunes and Voodoo. And we're hosting screenings across the country, so to find out if there's a screening near you, or to host a screening, please visit AmericanDreamDoc.com. That's AmericanDreamDoc.com. You've been listening to All Ears with me, Abigail Disney. Our supervising producer is Alexis Pancrazzi. Jake Frankenfield is our associate producer. Our engineer is Florence Barrow-Adams. Bob Golden composed our theme song. And our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. For Fork Office, the All Ears team is Angie Wang, Dominique Bouchard, Phil Nuxall, Cody Young, and Kathy Camacho. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at abigaildisney.com slash all ears. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for listening.